This is Sarah Stewart-Holland. And this is Beth Silvers. Thank you for joining us for Pantsuit Politics. Welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We are currently on our summer schedule, which includes revisiting some of our favorite conversations on the show. Today, we're sharing our conversation on friendship with Jennifer Sr. Jennifer Sr. is an American journalist and author. She is a staff writer at The Atlantic, and she is also the winner of the 2022 Pulitzer Prize for Feature Writing. She's the author of one of my favorite books, All Joy and No Fun, The Paradox of Modern Parenthood, and we were thrilled to have her on to talk about friendship. Before we share our conversation with Jennifer, we would love to invite you to leave a review of our show on the Apple Podcast Player. It helps more people find Pantsuit Politics. I loved this recent review that said, if I could give infinity stars, I would. I think I have withheld from writing a review for so long due to knowing that no words I write could possibly sum up just how much this podcast means to me. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much. You don't even have to have great words about it. It just means a lot to us that you take some of your valuable time to support the work that we do. Your reviews encourage our team members, and they help more people find Pantsuit Politics. And the more people who are listening, the more we think our discussions here are enhanced by your feedback and participation. So thank you so much for spending a minute or or two today, leaving a five-star review of Pansy Politics. And now enjoy this conversation we are so proud of that we had with Jennifer Sr. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is, I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. First of all, huge congratulations are in order. You were awarded the 2022 Pulitzer Prize for feature writing for What Bobby McIlvain Left Behind, which was the most beautiful reflection of a family's loss in the 20 years since 9-11. So congratulations. Thank you, ma'am. The ideal time to learn that you've won a Pulitzer is not while you were in the midst of finishing and then editing and then closing a piece about Steve Bannon. <laughs> Oh I'm, no! That I was going to ask what your next piece is. <laughs> I was I was like on the home stretch of that. It is it, it, the cognitive dissonance, like the, you know, the kind of elation I felt was so utterly canceled out by the material that I was working on and like the stress of having to close it on time. We had this group Zoom, and my editor, we, you know, all these like shiny, happy, you know, faces. I have the nicest colleagues ever. 
And the my editor in chief closed it by saying, Jen, go back to work and finish your story, and everyone else go and celebrate on Jen's behalf. Oh no! I know. I was like, what is wrong with this picture? Oh my god. I mean, and if it had been, it could have been about like the copper mines of Nevada. It could have been anything, (laughs) but it was about Steve Bannon. I mean, of all things, you know. Yeah, I have to ask, what compelled you to write about Steve Bannon? How did you make that choice? Well, I mean, I've always had like politics in my portfolio and the 2022 elections are coming up, right? So there was only so long I could go without, I couldn't really get away with not writing about politics. At some point I was going to have to capitulate (laughs) and just do it. And my editor basically said, you got to choose somebody, anybody, one of the figures, you know, who's out there. And I I knew Steve Bannon would say yes, you know, because he's a media guy. And I knew that his podcast played some role in, I, I thought anyway, in help, helping to organize some of the energy behind the fury on January 6th. You know, I mean, he's got this very mm-hmm. activist listenership and he's kind of like a, a preacher uh, or a televangelist really would be a better way of describing yeah. when he's, so, I mean, you know, and he was game because he's always game. And I think mm-hmm. he's like Trump. He, he, he pines for mainstream coverage. Um, in hindsight, it was a horrendously bad idea, but it, 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 <laughs> you know, of all the, I mean, of all the figures, I mean, he wanted me to go for somebody, you know, who was Trumpist and part of the conversation. And I knew that he would endure, he wouldn't get knocked out in the middle of a primary, you know, right. by the time it pubbed. And, you know, I mean, you know, there were all sorts of considerations. Blah, well, blah, 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 this blah. De- this piece is different. The yeah. piece you won the Pulitzer from. <laughs> and I have little. to tell you, you know, in our book, now what? We talk about... Staying present with loved ones, even as they engage with the reality you might not completely understand. And I really can't think of a more clear and beautiful example of that than Helen and Bob and the way you write about them in the piece. I really I really cannot. Thank you. I really, really appreciate that. And I'm very glad that that came through. And I'll tell you, if I hadn't been able to get the diary, that mm. is what the whole story would have been about. It would have been about their marriage, right? Because... You know, here is a man who descended into 9-11 conspiracies and trutherism as a way to cope with losing his son, just waking up every morning and it's September 12th and it's there's a murder to be solved, you know, who actually truly was behind September 11th and who killed his kid. And there's a wife who had absolutely no interest at all in going down these rabbit holes and thinking about this and just had a very different way of coping with their grief. And that was going to be the story if I didn't get the diary, you know, and then it it, it had this, then suddenly when it did, it had many, many, many parts, but thank you. Thank you for saying that. But I think that theme is still even with the diary, like how people deal with it and how to stay present or sometimes not staying present with someone through that sort of grief process. I just, it really, well-deserved, well-deserved. It's an incredible piece. Thank you. Thanks. You have another incredible piece that we've not been able to stop thinking about since it published, and that is, it is it's your friends who break your heart. And you wrote about the great pandemic friendship reckoning in your own life and how in middle age we're past the collection phase with friends and should be enjoying hard-won friendships. And it just doesn't turn out that way for many of us. And I have to tell you, every couple of weeks, I solicit questions from our audience, just what do you want to hear us talking about? And every time I get a question that sounds like, how do I find friends Mm. in this stage of my life? So I would love to hear about what made you decide to do this piece. And now having some distance from it, what parts of it are you still thinking about? Oh, that's a great question. I'm going to answer the second question first. Like, what am I thinking about now? I am thinking about one of my smartest friend's critiques of the piece. Um, or not a critique, it was something that he thought was missing, that he would have loved to have read 1,500 or 2,000 words about. He was, And he said, in addition to envy, he said, you know what you don't talk about in that piece is anger. Like Mm. that with many friends, not with all of them, but with many friends, there are these large stores of anger that you sit on and it goes unprocessed or it doesn't get processed healthily with a spouse or with children or with family members, um, there's a better developed vocabulary for discussing anger. 
And with friends, there often isn't. And it's, and it can really corrode, right? And he said, I really wished you'd discussed that. And God, have I been thinking about that ever since? Because mm. he's totally right. And I think, to be honest, I, I was too afraid of even going there in my head. Like I could go to envy because I'm lucky enough to have like only very badly envied like, you know, a couple of times in the last, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, you know, I mean, uh, and I talked about it, you know, it was in the context of Bob, you know, going on Oprah and how great, you know, how gracious and funny he was about it and, um, and real he was, I, but, but anger is different. And I, you know what, honestly, I have more of that. And I think I just mm. couldn't, do, I couldn't cope with it. So um, that's like a coda that someone and the, and you guys could talk about and you could get somebody else to talk about who actually has access to it because I, I my mind wanders <laughs> into blank space. I get so freaked out even thinking about it. Well, I think it's just about what you talk about in the piece, which is we, to me, envy, anger, all of it is this undercurrent of conflict and we do not have language, experiences, like guidance, wisdom, writing. We just don't have a lot about how to deal with conflict inside friendship. I'll never forget I had a really bad falling out with a, who I'm still friends with, but we had to go through sort of this period. And she said, well, I don't fight with my friends. And then I, and I said, well, how are you even friends? How are you friends if you never have a conflict or a fight? But I just don't think we have language or, like I said, any sort of cultural wisdom about how to deal with any sort of conflict in a friendship. And I think we tell ourselves these lies. We write about this in, in our book, like, you know, in college, you're sort of in the same grade, you're the same age, and there's this sameness. But even at that period of life, when it's easy to make friends and you're sort of falling into lockstep, you're not the same. And there's still conflict and there's still anger and there's still envy, even in those time periods where friendship feels easier. And so if we don't have any language during those easier times to deal with anger or envy and any sort of conflict, well, dang, what are we going to do later in life? Well, yeah, like 30 years into a friendship, what are you going to do? And and mm -hmm. I think your response was really a good one, which is how do you have friends if you don't ever walk through conflict? But, of course, there are people who believe, look, friends are there. They're supposed to be the the frictionless part of my life, yep. which is a misunderstanding, yep. I think. I, I can't imagine all friendships being frictionless. The ones that are frictionless are, well, first of all, they're the rarest of elements on the periodic table. You really <laughs> luck out when that happens. And sometimes it's because, like I can think, my friend Sarah, I, there's no friction with her. But why is there no friction with her? Because she doesn't have friction with anybody. Mm. Sarah is born, you know, just with this, like, extremely even-keeled temperament. Nothing ever phases her. She, there isn't a particle of anger in her, you know. This is a she, hypothetical. It does not describe me. I can tell you that much. Yeah, right. It doesn't describe anybody I know except my friend Sarah Murray, who is just always like that. And, okay, so there's Sarah. And then there's everyone else in my life, <laughs> you know. And, and so— um, and I think that if we want our friendships to be serious and we want them to deepen and we want them to kind of rival the deepest of relationships we have, I, I think they're going to have to, you're going to have to work through that shit, but it's hard. It's really hard. My husband and I saw an early screening of Top Gun last night <laughs> and I told him I felt like the summary of it is that by middle age, everything is at least 33% heartbreaking. <laughs> That's so, oh and my God. It was like kind of beautiful. To just have have a movie like Top Gun say that out loud, uh, because I, I can't imagine frictionless friendships at this stage in my life. We're all we're all just made of too much. Right, mm -hmm. we are made of too much. That's beautiful and thirty three percent heartbreaking. God, there was it's that um, Maggie Smith poem that I have to find. You know all the things she can't tell her daughter because really life is just so hard. You know yes. it just is hard. But yes, I think that that is true. We are made of too much at this point. And it's it's beautiful as long as your friends can put up with it. Hey, you want to hear a cool story about what came out of um, that piece? Absolutely. One of the people who I wrote about, I, I, I talked about how like I, I had a falling out with a male friend. Yes, that became a parent. Yes, that guy. Yeah. He figured out it was him. <laughs> He's Steve Metcalf. He's like one of the three guys on Slate Gabfest. 
on the oh culture on the culture gap fest. And he said on the air, I think this is me. And, and either I'm like a really narcissistic, and in which case <laughs> I'm about to have egg on my face, or it was me and I have egg on my face. Cause I think I said something like that to Jen. And I was just young and overwhelmed and a dad. And I was a <laughs> friend. That's a quote. <laughs> <laughs> like he got both of them in there really impressive <laughs> and and he said you know and I totally I totally loved her and I I'm just really sorry mm. and then he reached out to me I mean it was just like he said on the air like many years later what he and I could not like kind of work through you know and I couldn't do it either I couldn't say god that really hurt my feelings you have no idea how much that hurt my feelings so maybe being older also just like helps you, you know, you've been married maybe, and you know, you've had enough fights and learned what works and what doesn't and what you shouldn't, shouldn't say. And, or maybe you're still sucky at fighting, you know, but I mean, it, it's possible that you have a better sense of how to navigate some of that. Can I, can I go to your first question, which was uh, the, the, like, how do you find new friends? I've spoken to ladies who are older and in retirement or their kids are fully launched and they say, you revisit everybody who you sort of didn't have time for, that they do kind of resurface their back and that you can deepen those friendships again. You'll be surprised at the number of friends who will re-enter your life and you can deepen things with. Um, but in terms of making new friends, if you're in a brand new place, it is a bear. I mean, I, do you get a dog? You know, then you, I mean, <laughs> you've got something to talk about. It, it's very, you know, all the cliches. Oh, you know, you you find hobby. You know, you can go to bar, bars and restaurants alone. But I mean, but it's hard. I don't have great answers for all of that. I mean, and I, I, I'm very afraid of the the narrowing, the funnel that comes when when you move or when people start to get sick. I mean, it's, it becomes really difficult. Well, I think some of that hardness is found in and something you name in the piece that I want to scratch out a little bit with, which is sort of the embrace of individuality in modern life, right? That we have this sense of like, we're all completely unique individuals and we all have these completely unique identities and completely unique needs. And if you don't embrace a single part of that, then we're done. I love this line. You say, one could argue that modern life conspires against friendships, even as it requires the bonds of friendships all the more. Like, I think that there's this this tension between individuality and sort of the collective that bubbles up in modern friendships. And I think you definitely see that in when you're looking to make new friends in a space, right? One, because we don't have a lot of the civic institutions that fostered that, that said, like, well, we share this thing. We share this membership. We share. I mean, when I moved back to my hometown, even though it was my hometown and I had friends here, I joined basically like our version of Junior League, which is still very popular here where I live in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And it was I had like the full experience of friendship, lots of conflict, full on betrayal inside that organization and also made some of my like strongest friends. But I don't think that 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 sense of like we have to join in something together that doesn't honor every single piece of our individuality, but will give us some things to share and maybe build friendships off. I think that those things have weakened. And I think that tension we always feel between being our unique selves, being like honored for our individualities, but also finding a place of belonging is really hard right now. It's really hard. And, you know, not everywhere has junior leagues. You know, you can join a church Mm -hmm. and and just look, you know, but church attendance, all these things are in decline. You know, you can join and join a synagogue. uh, These attendances are in decline. Robert Putnam wrote about this at length in 2000 in Bowling Alone and has done work on it since. Lots of people have, you know, you can join, you know, a book group. Is your book club going to be there for you if you lose your spouse in the way that your church would have been in the days of old? Probably not, you know, or the Rotary Club or the Elks or all these things that have fallen. It's harder. It's harder. You know, this age of radical individualism has come at a very steep price. I just, I'm back in touch with an old friend. We were friends in college, friends in our 20s. We had kids and sort of that was like a 10 or 12 years where we kind of lost track of each other, right? And 
we just started hanging out again. And he said, you know, and his father died this year. There's a big memorial coming up for him. And he said, you know, you are welcome to attend because I knew his dad, right? You know, you know, people's dads when you're in college and you know them in your twenties, you know, you have it when you're before you were married or whatever. And it's, I'd have to reshuffle a lot to get to the memorial that's on this Thursday. And it's a huge memorial. A gajillion people will be going. It will be recorded. It is not necessary for my, for me to be, there will be thousands of people there probably because this guy, his father is somebody a lot of people knew. But there's some part of me that thinks this wouldn't have even been a question 40 years Mm -hmm. ago. I would have dropped everything and I wouldn't have lost touch with him. Yeah. Like, then again, I don't think I would have had a really close male friend Mm. 40 years ago. Yeah. You know, it's because of the same developments, you know, I mean, they're all of a piece. It's because life is what it is that one of my dearest friends is a guy, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, that just wouldn't have even been, you know, you look at my mother, that's not true. Right, right. I think that relates to the limitations of our vocabulary. And part of the reason that I have been so obsessed with this piece of yours is I love the language of the thickness or the thinness of friendships. I love the moment when you talk about these two writers who are in conversation with one another and how their feelings became too hot to handle. Like just mm. this comes up for me in, in friendships with men, too. Like what is the range of acceptable obsession with a friend uh, when there is the possibility that that it becomes uncomfortable for a spouse or something like that, we just we just don't have a lot of words to talk about those things and put them in any kind of context for ourselves or the other people in our lives who are affected by those really intense, thick friendships. That is so true, and it, it's absolutely the, the kind of cross gender friendships and spousal things can be incredibly intense. We take vacations together, my office spouse and I, and his. His spouse and my spouse, we're all friends. We all know each other very, very well. And we all know each other's kids. So thank God for that, right? I mean, and um, my husband was his editor too for a while. So I I think they had an independent relationship. But it would have been bonkers otherwise. Because I find that my office spouse often says things that are more comforting to me than my Mm -hmm. husband does, in part because he's been spared hearing the exact same soundtrack every day for, you know, 18 years. Like my office spouse, though he's heard me whine a lot, (laughs) it's less than my husband has, you know? It's like, it's still a little bit fresher. He's a little bit less worn down, but I do, I do agree. I, I, I think that that, I mean, that's its own. I would read, I'm just telling you right now, if someone wrote a book about you know, the complexities of office spouseship, mm, I would, yeah. uh, you know, I would get up in the middle of dinner to go buy that book. I think it just speaks to that sort of multifaceted, like we're multifaceted. And so we have to have relationships that speak to all those multifaceted parts of ourselves, like to think that one spouse or one sibling or one best friend can hold all the different, you know, it it's almost like this paradox of that individuality. Well, yeah, a collective is the only thing up for that challenge. <laughs> a collective well, is the only it. thing many, up for that uniqueness. Well, and you need many yeah. buckets. That's just it. And they are filling the place where the your church or the Elks, Elks Club or your bowling league or whatever it once was, right? That's And I think this was kind of the devastating problem with the 1950s companionate kind of model of marriage where like husbands and wives couldn't do that for each other. And the wives really got the bum end of the stick. The men, I mean, you saw this in Mad Men played out pretty well where the fellows all had like their camaraderie at work and the women were just screwed. They were screwed. They were alone in their big empty houses. And, you know, Betty Draper, just with her thousand yard stare and her Mm -hmm. cigarette, you know, like sitting there, you know, maybe finding some companionship with the women who were similarly screwed, who were trapped in their houses next door. I mean, Betty Friedan was onto something very mm-hmm. real. You know, you you need more. You need a lot more to make you whole yeah. and to capture you. I mean, you also need more fulfillments. I mean, I think, that, I think that was her point, which doesn't necessarily mean work, but it does mean that you can't just be consigned to, you know, sitting at home all day and looking pretty. You know, 
and running a vacuum. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second-chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. have to say now that it's been eight years since you wrote my favorite parenting book of all time all joy no fun the paradox of modern parenthood still pass it out still pass it out to people oh you're the one that's me um (laughs) i was wondering where those three sales came from thank you uh when do we get a sequel that's the first thing i want to (laughs) know never (laughs) never i hated writing a book it was so lonely well you did such a good job and i'd love to hear how you think about that book now, now that you're farther along in your parenting journey, especially after the impact of pandemic parenting, because I think it does, it, it speaks so well to that paradox of parenting. And I think it speaks to, some to parenting littles, but to me, it still feels relevant. But I wonder how you think about that that book now. You know, you're sweet. I, I guess I think, uh, well, a few things. First of all, it it's very dated in there. Um, if you read it, I talk about blackberries. (laughs) (laughs) There were no such thing as iPads, let alone multiplayer, you know, online video games. I mean, the idea that like the internet was going to sort of insinuate its 
tentacle, you know, it's porn tentacles into our young boys, and, you know, the, and that there was going to be TikTok and that everybody was going to have this outward facing. I mean, the perils that kind of what, what, what our adolescent children were going to come across, none of that was apparent to me. And so, um, it would have been a different book in that sense, right? There would have been so much in the raising the adolescence chapter. And, and it would have been a different kind of book because, you know, it's also happening to the grownups. Uh. We are susceptible to some of the same things that our adolescents are. So it would have in that way been very hard to maybe even contain. It would have gotten unwieldy and hurry because the internet is just not bringing out our finest selves. It's bringing out our inner <sighs> adolescence, right? So, That's yeah. An so, so, uh, yeah, right. And then so, uh, so uh, I look at it and I think that it's dated number one. And then on the other hand, I, I think that some of it was like, swept into the culture so quickly, the idea that parenting was like kind of a drag and sort of feel the same compulsion to be excellent at parenting in the same way that women in the 1950s felt obliged to be excellent housewives and to keep Mm -hmm. fine homes. I think all that stuff got subsumed very, very quickly. So its lessons were sort of absorbed. So now people don't even know where some of those ideas came from. A few years ago on Christmas Day, Claire Kane Miller had this lead story, front page story in the New York Times about how women were spending more time with their children now than they had in the 1960s. That's like on page 11 of my book and minute four of my TED talk. <laughs> and, but like it was new to her, yeah. you know, it was new to her. So she basically recapitulated the entire thesis of my book. Like, and uh, I got a lot of tweets that day saying, um, why aren't you mentioned in this? And I was like, I don't know, you know, but like, it was, you know, it it was all news to her and, you know, and it flew at high altitude, you know, uh, like in the New York Times, most emailed and most read for like a week, you know, because it's news to a certain, Mm -hmm. you know, like five or six years later, no one remembers who said it. Everybody has to rediscover it, right? Everybody is rediscovering the same thing. Um, and so, like, I just sat there kind of laughing, you know, I mean, there it all is again. People forget, you know, it gets, it, it just kind of gets reabsorbed in the culture. And and then people go off and write it. So I, I feel like it, it is at once um, dated and um, a perennial. Yep. Well, I think <laughs> the know? parts for me that the reason I still recommend it, I mean, reading that sort of history and realizing that the economically useless and emotionally priceless... Yeah, that's I quote good. that all yeah. the time. And I think more than, you know, you can't tell the future, but illuminating the past and the way we've changed and, th- and our thinking around parenting is always going to be helpful. And I think makes yeah. people feel less alone. And I think what you Thank did you. Yeah, in yeah. the book about particularly sort of gendered perceptions of parenting. Yes, that holds, that holds up, up so that's well. It's so helpful okay. in the sense yeah. of like, well, the way that men parent it, there's a bit there's benefits to that like the the idea that like the only right way to parent is the way women parent and you know that the pressure that that is on women and the fact that there is be, children benefit from different styles and approaches and i just I, I remember reading and feeling an enormous sense of like pressure release like oh okay okay i see what's happening here that's bigger than me and I don't have to feel like I have to fix it or solve it. And that this is, you know, I just, I still, I still love that book. I still love that book. I adore you for saying that. And I will say that that is the one part that I feel proudest of and like it can still stand on its own two legs and will for really some time, I think. The end of the second chapter where Clint says, I'm the standard. I am the standard. And his wife, Angie, can't bring herself to just think I am the standard, meaning I'm good enough. Or yep. like, wh- I, th- there is no like, cra- I, oh, I know how, how it came up. He didn't have a father who was very involved. So he felt like whatever he did yeah. was good and good enough. And whereas Angie had all these insane notions about what she had to do to be a perfect mm-hmm. mom, rather than just going, you know, good enough. I hugged my kids today. I, yeah, the good enough parent idea that she just couldn't let herself off the hook, you know? Whereas her husband was like, what? They're, they're protected. They're taken care of. They're alive. They're they're, they're (laughs) watching. I know. Ball game one. Yep. (laughs) You know, they're watching TV. They seem, they're cheerful and they're giggling. Like, how have I failed? 
How about to me, that's like a thread in the friendship piece, too. We need a little bit of good enough with friends. Like, you don't have to reach out in a tough moment and say the perfect thing. Reaching out is good enough. You don't have to get together every Friday night for dinner. Reaching out and getting to dinner once every six months is good enough. Like, I think there's there's a little bit of that even in all our relationships that we do to each other and ourselves. That's a great, great point. In fact, it reminds me of a, a hack that I'm now going to share with everybody it, that, that my friend Rachel did early on. She's a professor in upstate New York, and she wrote to me and she said, I'm writing you a long email, and long emails are really intimidating. So I'm telling you that um, you can. Re- I would love a reply to this long email, um, and it can be like within the next co- like couple of months, you know. And it doesn't have to be as long. Like just whenever you feel like you can reply, just send, you know. I just would love to hear from you. Know how you're, but like think about somebody saying, "Answer me in two <laughs> months." I get an email and I'm like, ah, right. you know, and also her saying your email does not like, I just wrote you a very long email. It does not have to be as long. Your yeah. reply, I would, you know, it's so generous and it's setting such a, it's a much more realistic sort of parameter, right? If, if at any point yeah. in your relationships, you can ease the pressure on people, lean into that instinct. Oh God. Totally. Well, I have to ask you, you know, we we are a politics podcast and our theory of being a politics podcast is that all this stuff is the basis of the way that we express ourselves politically. Mm -hmm. Do you feel good enough in your relationships? Do you have enough relationships? How lonely are you? So I have to ask you, I'm really curious, as you have been studying Steve Mm -hmm. Bannon, what (laughs) connections you would draw between everything we've been talking about and the way that he has become, as you said, kind of a minister for people. Oh, God, that is so fascinating. That is very, very perceptive. So Steve Bannon said something. This is going to speak directly, whiz-bang, to your point. Steve Bannon told Errol Morris in a documentary about him. Errol made a documentary about Steve Bannon in 2018 with like a not so great name called American Dharma. It was great if you understood Steve Bannon. It's not anything that's box office sexy. And he kind of got canceled for doing it, which was a shame because I think people ought to know what Steve Bannon is about. I'm mildly afraid at this point of getting canceled too, although I think we are slightly more enlightened about, you know, what happens when you don't know what's Mm -hmm. going on. Sub Rosa, I think people ought to know. Uh, you know, or not even separate, you know, not even the subterranean currents. These are just currents in American life that are happening that we're not paying attention to. Anyway, uh, Steve Bannon said something to Errol Morris that was so chilling and so perceptive. He said when he was working for internet gaming entertainment, he was in Hong Kong. He was astonished to discover how many men, grown men, men in their 30s, played all these multiplayer online games and how intensely they played them and how how many hours they spent doing them. And he said, but then he sort of understood it because let's say that you are Dave in accounting and you drop dead one day. You're 250 pounds and you drop dead. You find some preacher who doesn't know you very well, who does a 10-minute eulogy based on a couple of things that a few people have said about you. And you get dropped into a earn and put into one of these perpetual cemeteries, and that's Dave. If Dave online dies, online Dave is Ajax, Mm. and thousands of people show up at Dave's funeral, and Dave is carried in a caisson to a giant raging funeral pyre, Mm. and the warring tribe that hated Dave comes out to fight, and everybody stays home for Dave's funeral. They miss a day of work. That's Dave Online. Dave Online is Ajax. Who is more real, Ajax or Dave? And that people relate better to their online avatars. Their idealized selves are who they want to be. And he said, when I took over Breitbart, I had that top of mind when I built out the uh, comment section. Because people, their online comments selves are their realer selves. They're who they want to be. They are their aspirational selves. And that is like, so the people who are trolls, the people who are the big online figures, you know, who are mobilizing the right. And he said, those selves 
properly directed and weaponized can be used in politics. Mm. Your online selves, those angry people can be, that energy properly directed can be put to political use. And that's why it feels so disjointed to the, all of us living among the, the real world Daves. Right. Correct. And I think, you know, we, those of us who live online, who don't live online, who live in the real world, can't quite understand what that energy is, what those alter ego energies are about, and how they can become some, so inflamed, and how they can privately go into a, a, bo- a voting booth and vote for someone reprehensible who understands their rage. Think about what happened on, like, January 6th. Mm-hmm. I mean, pe- people came out as their real-life avatars. Yeah. They were cosplaying. They were they were Ajax, right? They missed a day of work. They showed up at the Capitol with their own version of caissons, you know, and they were fighting and they were in face paint and fur. Think about that, you know? Well, and I think the mass shootings um, are another reflection of that, mm-hmm. where it crosses over into yeah. real life. That's right. Think about it. They all have these online manifestos. Mm-hmm. They've or got they these online it. cells. Or they live stream it, right? I mean, that's right. It's their online personas. I mean, it's it's fascinating. And I mean, Bannon is a fundamentally a media guy. He's an media impresario, right? He did Breitbart News. He made all these propaganda films, the most famous of which was about Sarah Palin. He understands this. And it's 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 frightening. It's dangerous. And it just seems to me that there's like the the thread here is who might Dave have been if he had been invited in real life into some full expression of of himself and how w- would it be so dark um bingo yeah. what if he had a real yeah. church yeah although of course my colleague tim alberto just wrote the best thing that i think i've read this year about how the churches are turning oh my gosh they're, they're privileging so politics so over that piece was so good right that they're privileging politics over spiritual identity and like and and, and scripture so this is a brand new question you 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 asked the exact right question it's the robert putnam question but what if that's getting lost now yeah. where does one go just for fellowship just for love just for support I mean, I want my church to bring me casseroles when when someone dies. I I I don't need them to tell me how to yeah. vote. Well, I mean, that's definitely our theory here. Is that at the end of the day, it's it's us together with each other, right? Like, we are the institution. We are the committee. Like the friendships, the the Helen and Bob marriages, the the moments where we say, "I see you. I see you. You don't have to go online to be seen. I see you." I think about all the time this, like, it was just like a short roundup in the times of people talking about interactions with their conservative relatives. And somebody said, I had this cousin, he was getting in with the alt-right and his sister, I think it was his sister or another female cousin, just wouldn't stop with him, just wouldn't give up on him, just went at him and went at him and went at and eventually sort of extracted him from it. But she just wouldn't stop. She just wouldn't stop showing up. In the face of conflict, in the face of hard conversations, just saying, I see you. You don't have to go there. I see you. I see you. Two things to say to that. Oh, my God. Okay. So, number one, I was totally unrelatedly the chairwoman of the um, selection committee for the Pulitzers on nonfiction because I'd been a book critic, you know, at the Times, one of the daily book critics for two and a half years. And I, all I basically reviewed was nonfiction. So, when I abandoned that gig... Um, they asked me whether or not I wanted to go through, you know, all the entries, you know, and lead a committee to winnow it down to a group of three. And one of the books that we chose is called Homeland Security. And it's all about how banal radicals actually mm. are, particularly, it's mainly Muslim fundamentalists. They're mainly just lost boys. They're like normal yep. adolescent teenagers. And the when they are successful at de-radicalizing, it's always the sister, the mom, the people who know them. Oh, come on. You like chocolate ice cream and watching that mindless film. And like, you're yeah. you. You're you. You're not them. You're you. You're us. Right? So, and I loved that book. And you should mm-hmm. read that book. And everyone should read that book. It's such a great book. It got totally overlooked. It was barely reviewed. It broke my heart. It's fabulous. So, a, that, yes, exactly what you just said about Thanksgiving, but to the, like, a hundredth yeah. power. 
The second thing is, yes, let's go back to the McElveins, right? Where we've got a, a conspiracy theorist husband and a mom who is indifferent or might privately think that most of this stuff is just kind of loopy, right? What's their bond? Mm. They are the only two people who knew what it was to lose that boy. They loved this boy so much. It's their love. Mm. And that they went through that grief side by side. And they are the only, they knew him for 26, almost 27 years. And who else can relate Mm. to that? Can relate to losing that? Only those two. And as long as they understood that each one's expression of grief was an expression of love and love by another Mm. means, like, and that it was I'm Helen saying about her husband, how can I stop him from doing what he's doing? He is fighting for his son in the way that he knows mm-hmm. how. People might see it as a sign of, you know, crazy. I see it as an expression of love. It was so beautiful. And when, when you reinterpret someone you love that way, it's different. But grieving is lonely. So clearly he found fellowship yeah. with all these 9-11 truthers, right? But Helen is still steadfastly by his side, you know, and I'm hoping he can just at some point replace all that weird fellowship that he's getting with truthers with his grandkids mm-hmm. and Helen alone, and that that can really do the trick. Well, thank you for sharing their stories. Thank you for all your writing and this this thread thank that you. we've been pulling on together. And thank you for coming on our show. We adore you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, my God. I've, I've adored this conversation. I will... Oh, I will remember this conversation. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. Thank you. Middle-aged brain termites or none. And you're welcome yes. back anytime. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, my God. Thank you so I'd much. love to come back. Okay. Thank you, guys. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. 
Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. for joining us here at Pantsu Politics. We will be back in yours on Friday where I am sharing my conversation with Richard Reeves, which I cannot wait for all of you to hear. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Maggie Penton is our community engagement manager. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Allie Edwards. Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Helen Handley. Tiffany Hassler. Emily Holliday. Katie Johnson. Katina Zuganellis-Kasling. Barry Kaufman, Molly Kors, Catherine Vollmer, Lori Ladau, Lily McClure, Linda Daniel, Emily Neasley, The Pantsuits, Tawny Peterson, Tracy Putoff, Sarah Ralph, Jeremy Sequoia, Katie Steigers, Karen True, Annika Uveline, Nick and Elisa Valelli, Amy Whited, Emily Helen Olson, Lee Shea McDonough, Morgan McHugh, Danny Osmond, Jen Ross, Sabrina Drago. Jeff Davis, Melinda Johnston, Michelle Wood, Joshua Allen, Nicole Berkless, Paula Bremer, and Tim Miller.